1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. If, let us say, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan just for the sake of argument, got together and said, we're going to create digital currency, that that would create a whole set of questions about existing arrangements. It's far from clear to me that the United States government would pool sovereignty in that way, because it would involve some sacrifice of the dollar. Hello, everybody.
0: I'm Coindesk Chief Content Officer Michael Casey. I'm here with Neil Ferguson, Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Neil, thank you very much for being with us on the program. My pleasure. To frame this in the context of coronavirus here, and the, the thing that I am so struck by is that it feels obviously very historic. I just saw today that China has announced, just momentarily, I think that they're kicking out New York Times journalists, they're kicking out Washington Post journalists, and Wall Street Journal journalists. I think in response to Trump's sort of, you know, China virus comments or something. And it just feels as if this is the kind of environment where travel is being shut down, where there is a protect one's own and not go with each other sort of thing, whereas it is a massive sort of backlash against globalization. It doesn't feel like 2008. It doesn't really feel like the Asian crisis. It feels like there may even be something similar to the Second World War here. Not that we are going to necessarily go into that sort of environment. Let's hope not. But rather that you know, there's a huge geopolitical shift that can come from a moment like this, particularly when you time it with all sorts of other shifts in the global economy and in technology. So I just want to throw out there the idea that back at the end of the Second World War, when the world sort of looked, you know, the dust had settled, pulled together, Bretton Woods happened, and the current framework of the global financial system, with the U.S. at the center of the monetary model, was established. In that context, at some point, we're going to have to sit back and understand how the world gets through this together. What does all that mean for the world of money and the international financial architecture?
1: Well, Michael, I'm a historian. I think about networks in history. It was the central subject of my most recent book, The Square and the Tower. And I have long argued that that globalization should be understood as a series of interlocking networks of which the international financial system is just one. And that like all large and complex systems, the network is is vulnerable to an outage, to crisis. And we've seen crisis take a number of different forms over the last dozen years. It took the form of a financial crisis. People usually date that from 2008. Actually, it was visible from late 2006, if you were paying attention. We've had a migration crisis, which was most acute in Europe in 2015, but in fact has propelled populist politics to the fore in multiple countries, not least the United States. And even as the world was getting more and more concerned about climate change, I was warning, and others were warning, Nasim Taleb was another, that we were significantly more vulnerable to a pandemic in the short run than to climate change, which is a long run phenomenon by comparison. So when I first heard of the unusual pneumonia in Wuhan, red lights were flashing in my head. I wrote a column just after you and I met at Davos in the World Economic Forum, saying how extraordinary it was to see the global elite waste a week discussing climate change on the eve of a pandemic. There were even three people from Wuhan at the World Economic Forum. I wonder if you knew that. So for me, it's not in the least surprising that particularly we in the West have been caught out by the pandemic. We have been delusional about the sustainability of globalization for more than a decade. We've ignored repeated warnings. And of course, when it became Clear that this was not a Chinese virus, it was a a virus that was available to all of humanity and available in a matter of weeks because of its exponential spread. Financial markets tumbled, and we have seldom seen such steep sell-offs in the history of Wall Street. You asked me for some analogies. I don't think 1939, the outbreak of World War II, is especially good because most people saw that coming from at least the mid-1930s, if not earlier. A better analogy is actually 1918-19 when an influenza pandemic swept the world, killing more people than the whole of the First World War. This was known as the Spanish influenza. The good news is that COVID-19 is not as lethal a disease as that influenza strain, but it's still pretty lethal. It's a lot more lethal than your regular seasonal flu. And so we are in the midst of a global health emergency greater than anything we've seen in a century. And, and this is the critical point, many people who went through the financial crisis look at the markets and make the mistake of thinking, gee, it's another financial crisis. We need the Federal Reserve to do quantitative easing, and we need the US Treasury to run a large deficit. These are palliatives because this is not a financial crisis. It is a pandemic with financial symptoms. And QE and deficit spending are just like Tylenol to a patient suffering from a potentially lethal virus.
0: So, that concern is obviously played out, it seems, in the way that the markets reacted yesterday to the fact that immediately after the QE announcement, we had potentially, I think, the biggest decline since 1987 in the Dow. So clearly the solutions here uh, that are being thrown in the short term are not working. But I'm wondering as well, once it passes, let's, let's hope we do find the right solutions and we get through the short-term needs that the world needs and then we move to what is inevitably, I think, that kind of uh, post-mortem phase, an assessment of what could be different. Clearly what could be different around how we manage disease is the primary issue here. But given the sort of the shock impact of it, how markets have performed, and then placing that also in the context of all the other stresses that I think, you know, people have been defining in terms of geopolitics. Mark Carney's comments about, you know, the the role of the dollar and this sort of the central distortions that happen in the world, the stuff you've written about back around the Chimerica analogy you had back before the crisis, these sort of global imbalances seem to me to be something that, while not a product of the pandemic, are potentially really exacerbated by that. You know, is there a potential for this to be a trigger for some different way to structure the world of money?
1: Well, I think it's uh, important to begin by observing that while a pandemic is global, the solutions are very often national or even local. And I'll illustrate that point by noting that the World Health Organization's role in the crisis has largely been to provide a kind of lagging commentary, finally calling it a pandemic weeks after it obviously was one. The international institutions have played a minor role. The European Union has been notably weak and the key decisions have been taken either at the level of nation states, closing of borders, imposition of quarantines, etc., or at the local level, as just happened where I live in California with the decision to essentially lock down first a whole bunch of Bay Area counties and then California as a whole. So the decentralization is a very striking feature of the pandemic. Those local authorities that reacted most quickly and got social distancing, quarantining of cases, contact tracing of cases, those who got it right, cities like Hong Kong and Singapore, which had learned the lessons of SARS, have dealt very impressively with the pandemic. And those local authorities, beginning with the Wuhan and and Hubei authorities who screwed up, have paid a very heavy price, or their people have. So lesson number one, you may think globally, but you will probably act locally in the face of a contagion like this. That's important for those people who have For many years, warned against the centralizing tendencies of the financial system and indeed the centralizing tendencies of the internet, and have sought, for example, with blockchain technology, to devise some more innately decentralized or distributed structure for the world's operating system. I think we'll probably draw the wrong conclusions from all of this. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. But a right conclusion would be that very centralized systems can in fact perpetrate the biggest screw ups. In December, China basically had its Chernobyl because they hushed up the reality of what was happening in Wuhan for a fatal period of weeks. And so for the whole of December and the whole of January, there were direct flights from Wuhan To San Francisco, John F. Kennedy, Paris Charles de Gaulle, London Heathrow, and even Moscow. And those flights continued until the end of January. There was even a flight that landed in early February. So at heart, the pandemic can be traced back to a colossal failure of China's system of governance. And I think it was a failure at the central as well as at the local level. The failure to admit that they had another New virus on their hands, almost certainly emanating from their grotesque wet markets. The failure to be transparent led not only to thousands of deaths in Hubei province, but it is leading to thousands of deaths around the world. Chernobyl like failure of central authoritarian, unaccountable governance. And we're going to see, I think, some other failures, not quite on that scale, but potentially as the coronavirus encounters defective political systems that fail to react swiftly. It may even be that the European Union and the United States will end up with problems worse than Hubei in particular regions or states. I think the right lesson to draw from all of this is that a global order needs to be based on a distributed operating system, not on a centralized architecture. And I think that applies not just in the realm of money, but actually across the board, so that there is a greater capacity for local response than we currently have.
0: I want to drill down a little bit into what that distributed system would look like. But before then, let's go in specifically to money because you know there is a thesis out there that says if there is a breakdown in this centralized model and it's you know it's obviously a hybrid centralization because each currency nationally at least is nominally independent, but you have the dollar in Bretton Woods two still at the center of everything. That if we break that down, that that we end up with a world that may not be a replacement of that reserve currency with another one but rather a kind of a multipolar, multi-currency competitive environment in it that may not even be a competition between national currencies, but also corporate currencies. So obviously, Libra has drawn some attention. And then you've got decentralized kind of alternatives like Bitcoin that may not, in fact, work very well as payment vehicles, but they're certainly out there as another sort of store of value or at least another option for people. Is that something that makes sense to you as we move towards that distributed system and these centralized authorities are challenged? You know, How does it play out, that distributed model, with specifically with regards
1: to money? Some of the greatest theorists about money, Hayek, for example, Friedman, thought it better for there to be multiple competing currencies rather than a single global standard, and There were plenty of periods in history when that was the case. There were multiple currencies in, for example, 17th century Europe. And there were, in fact, many different forms of payment across the United States in the 19th century. Standardization of money came relatively late to the world. It began with the British gold standard, which by around 1900 was a global standard, pegging Currencies to a specific quantity of gold. I think one of the lessons of history is that with globalization comes a tendency for a particular currency to become the number one dominant currency for transactions, for trade, for international reserves. In the 19th century, it was the British pound, in the 20th century, it became the US dollar. And a great question to ask is, globalization enters this phase of crisis, will there be some other transition from the dollar to another currency? Or could we see a reversion to a multipolar, multi-currency world of the sort that we've seen in previous eras? It's very striking that, for example, more and more trade is now Uh, Carried out in terms of US dollars, even when neither party in a transaction is American. This is something that the International Monetary Fund has written about and expressed concern about. Mark Carney gave a brilliant paper at the Jackson Hole Federal Reserve Conference last summer in 2019, in which he argued that it was inherently unstable for the United States dollar to be world money for a variety of reasons, one of which being that that puts the position of the Federal Reserve into being essentially the world's central bank when it's mandated just to be the US national central bank. And Carney argued that we should be looking at ways of creating some surrogate digital currency linked potentially to more than one of the existing currencies. This bore more than a passing resemblance to what Facebook was trying to do with Libra, which was going to be a digital currency linked to existing currencies that would be held in a Swiss-based reserve. We are, I think, in other words, in an era of experimentation. In fact, the most advanced of these experiments, since Carney's paper is just a sketch and Libra is still at the launch pad stages in China, where the Chinese technology companies have created a new kind of payment system, payment platforms like Alipay and its Tencent equivalent, which are no longer just confined to China, but are being adopted in more and more emerging markets. If I'm right, and that trend continues, and they become more and more dominant in not just domestic consumer payments in China, but increasingly. In payments around the world, and potentially also in, say, remittances across borders, then we start to see a shift in the tectonic plates of of the international monetary system. But I think there are strong arguments from the point of view of the United States to prevent uh, China establishing too big a dominance in electronic payments, because the US depends to a greater extent than people realize on the US dollar being an international reserve currency. The US has an almost unlimited capability to borrow in its own currency because the dollar is so dominant. And given that the US federal deficit for 2020 was projected to be a trillion dollars before the coronavirus pandemic and could well double as a result of it, that borrowing facility is pretty crucial. So, my expectation is that we are going to have a period of challenges to the US dollar of various forms and tenacious defense of its dominance by a U.S. government that understands its existential importance to the United States.
0: I think we'll use that as a segue to talk a little bit about governance of this emerging experimental different distributed world, because one of the arguments that you hear from folks who are saying it's time for the U.S. to respond and somehow get ahead of these technological changes is precisely the idea that as the world's reserve currency, what's at risk for them is this kind of role of of global gatekeeper. The idea that New York based banks, as the kind of inherent correspondent bank intermediaries in all these global flows, kind of have a say so on whether or not an Iranian business person or, you know, a Russian or anybody else who's got sanctions on that is gonna be allowed to participate. And so it becomes this very powerful tool for the US to police the world. And to a large extent, not necessarily you know forever, but it does seem as if the world has been supportive of that, from, the, from at least from Western countries, from Europe, that may be breaking down in the age of Trump. What happens in this competitive environment where there are different models to that structure? The question of how the goodies and the baddies of the world get policed. And therefore, I suppose broadly, the question is, does the international realm become all the more chaotic and anarchic as a result of this? And is that a good or a bad thing? Because it might be actually good.
1: Well, I think the first thing to clarify is why the United States has developed such a powerful lever in the form of financial sanctions. This wasn't really something that happened prior to 9-11, to the terrorist attacks of 2001. After those attacks, there was a concerted effort by the US Treasury to try to track down the people who were financing Al Qaeda. In the process, US officials discovered that the entire system of international payments was effectively at the mercy of the US government if it chose to flex its muscles. International interbank payments go through something called SWIFT, which is located in Europe and Belgium, but is in fact something that the US can effectively control. It can shut a bank out of the swift payment system and therefore terminate its international ability to conduct operations. It can shut companies out of the international financial system, Russian companies. It can threaten Swiss banks if they maintain their tradition of secrecy with exclusion. The sky's actually the limit. The US can exert this sanctions lever to make sure that Iran can't trade with Europe, even when the Europeans are actually willing to resume trading relations with Iran. I think we probably mostly underestimate how extraordinarily effective this lever has been. It's actually been a much more effective weapon of US foreign policy than the uh, boots on the ground of the US Army and Marine Corps, with all due respect to those fighting men and women at much lower cost, financial sanctions can bring even mighty sovereign states such as Russia to heal, or at least can inflict pain on them that they simply cannot inflict back on the United States. So that's the history of of financial sanctions in a nutshell. The problem is that once you discover a a magic power as great as this, it's kind of tempting to overuse it. And I think it's fair to say that the US has overused uh, the financial sanctions weapon it was something that really was noticeable before Donald Trump became president because the Obama administration made considerable use of it. And the more you use that power, the more the rest of the world racks its brains wondering how it can find a way around the US. And I think that that's part of what's been driving financial innovation in China and in Europe, the proliferation of, of neobanks and fintech and all kinds of cryptocurrencies. There is this sense that the US dominated financial system. Is just giving too much power to the US government. Now, when you think of an experiment like Bitcoin, which will be 12 years old this year, part of its inspiration, I think, was to create money or at least a digital asset that didn't require the imprimatur of third party verification by any kind of state. This was a very difficult thing to do, in fact, almost impossible historically until our age of computing technology that enabled the blockchain to be viable. And what happened with Bitcoin was that initially it was a hobby of enthusiasts and nerds. And then very quickly, it was used by criminals who have the biggest incentive to escape from the clutches of the state, wherever they happen to be operating. So yeah, you might hate American financial sanctions. And you might resent the power that they give the United States. But be careful of creating a world in which there is no state authority over financial transactions. Because in that world, everything from drugs to nuclear technology to human trafficking, I could go on, those nefarious activities become much easier because you can engage in transactions unbeknownst to any any kind of state authority.
0: So do you think, therefore, that uh, governments will be cautious about embracing some of these technological solutions if they unwittingly open the door for this more anarchic environment to emerge? I mean, is that going to be something that essentially allows the US some time at least to hang on to its hegemonic position, given that you know, other governments aren't going to want to give it up. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about China, which you know, may well, with this technology, have the power to subvert sanctions. But the question is whether or not it sees the bigger picture that you're describing there in a way that it would benefit, like an open, fluid means of getting around US control may also allow people to move money in and out of China much more readily and get around their capital controls. Where do you see the calculus, I suppose, from these countries like China specifically who really would love to internationalize the Yuan and not have to be dependent upon US dominance, given the opportunities that seem to be starting to emerge out of these new technological options?
1: Always keep a hold of NURSE for fear of meeting something worse Wonderful old verses that I remember from my childhood. You may not like a financial system in which the US is the dominant player, but imagine a financial system in which China is the dominant player. I'm more concerned at the moment that a rising proportion of transactions could end up happening on Alipay and its WeChat equivalent, and therefore could come under the direct surveillance of the Communist Party of China, then I am worried about Bitcoin helping uh, criminals get up to no good. The real scenario, the scenario with a, a high probability in my mind, is one in which, as a result of what I've been calling Cold War II for over a year the Chinese are able to create a big chunk of the world economy on their platforms. And as people transition to the Chinese platforms, they essentially make their financial transactions accessible to Xi Jinping. There are some protections, uh, non-trivial protections for US citizens, especially in the dollar-denominated system. The federal government does not have unlimited power to look at what I do with my money it would have to have good reason to want to look at that. But there are no constraints on what the Chinese Communist Party can do with data, whether it's Chinese citizens or foreign citizens. And that's why I certainly thought twice about opening an Alipay account when a friend suggested I do so. The world of the libertarians, the fantasy world of multiple currencies, many of them apart from state supervision, is is a world that we're only likely to get to if the pandemic we're currently in is much worse than I think. And I think it's pretty bad, but it's not, it's not science fiction bad. It's not so bad that there's going to be a breakdown in public order in the United States, although I could imagine a few cities getting kind of hairy in the coming weeks. It's not so bad that the systems of governance in Europe, in China, to say nothing of the rest of the world, break down. But if we entered a period of real breakdown, let's imagine the virus mutated and became substantially more lethal so that the mortality rate, the case fatality rate, went up and turned out to be even higher than the 3-4%, which it's been in the worst affected places. And imagine a situation in which supply chains so broke down that food supplies to major cities were no longer being delivered. In that world, how long before the electricity grid goes down? That's the question. Because if you enter a world of anarchy in which electricity supply is not consistent, good luck with your cryptocurrency, good luck actually with anything that's internet-based. Now, we know that that scenario is possible in at least some countries because South Africa has been grappling with power outages for more than a year as a result of major problems with its utility structure. But I'm just imagining a situation of such chaos that much of the world ceased to be able to rely on its power supply. In that scenario, then you're much more likely to revert to pre-modern money forms. The rich will have their gold hoards behind heavy fortifications, and the poor will be using toilet paper as money. That's a scenario that I don't like to think about because I think it's pretty low probability. And as I said, it's in the realm of science fiction until a really lethal virus comes along. But I think one always has to bear in mind when talking about financial innovation that 90% plus of the financial innovation that we are currently seeing is heavily reliant on the kind of high speed internet connections that you and I are using to have this conversation.
0: It's a really good point. So let's then go the other extreme and, and just assume that we don't have, thankfully, that kind of mass pandemic driven dystopia, but rather, you know, the authorities of the world. Retain some control over things, and things get back to normal. Yet we still would have the imbalances that Mark Carney identified in that uh, Jackson Hole presentation. Um, does his suggestion then of the idea of, of resolving those imbalances by creating something like a you know the Libra basket, but in this case run by the IMF? Makes sense, given that, you know, you identified the failure, if you like, of these large multinational institutions when confronting these stresses, in this case, a pandemic, but one would argue that the role of these institutions is also for financial stress. Is that a solution? Is the IMF the bank or do we get back to Keynes's idea, but do it digitally, as, as Carney suggests?
1: I think it's more plausible that the West could develop a uh, digital money in the way that Mark Carney outlined at Jackson Hole than that we get there via Facebook. I've always been friendly and sympathetic towards Libra as a project and have spoken at length with David Marcus about it. But my caution from the outset was that without the backing of Regulators and central banks, it couldn't possibly succeed. And my own feeling was that for Facebook to lead the initiative with all its reputational problems coming out of the 2016 election was not ideal. Now, the problem is that if, let us say, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, or the Bank of Japan, just for the sake of argument, got together and said, we're doing this, we're going to create digital currency, that, that would create a whole set of questions about existing arrangements. And it's far from clear to me that the United States government would happily pool sovereignty in that way because it would involve some sacrifice of the, the strength and dominance of the dollar uh, to do so. It would be Keynes's triumph from beyond the grave, because Keynes, John Maynard Keynes understood in the negotiations that led up to Bretton Woods that if there wasn't a world currency, then the post-war order would be dominated by the United States and that the, the, the United Kingdom, the British Empire, would lose out as a result, which was correct. That's what happened. So Keynes could, could win a belated victory, But he'd need a US government to to be remarkably internationalist in its outlook, not something that we have at the moment. So I think this whole debate is for another day, frankly. It will be worth having perhaps under a new administration with a less nationalistic mindset. And only then, I think, is it likely to be more than a sketch for a conference speech
0: beyond just the question of money of course this whole idea of surveillance capitalism has become i think you know an increasingly important issue for people the backlash against facebook and libra in fact is partly driven by the fear that facebook could be a a surveiller of activities via transactions my sense is that slowly but surely maybe not fast enough the world is aware of becoming aware that they've given up massive amounts of privacy and that there's consequences for this. Do you think that realization that it becomes, does, does privacy as a right, if you like, and the need to address these concerns become a significant enough matter for policymakers to think through how they're going to architect this sort of, I suppose, actually also the post-coronavirus world, whether it applies to money or the internet generally? Or do we just sort of see this constant erosion of of privacy? Because the current response, if you like, to what's happening in China and South Korea and others is, is to look at the heavy-handed way in which people are addressing the pandemic and saying, all right, that's the lesser of two evils right now. I don't care anymore. Here's my data fix this problem right but is that just opening the door to a you know even worse kind of dystopia a 1984 like authoritarian nightmare or is it actually just something that is inevitable and we'll live
1: with well it would be worse than 1984 wouldn't it this dystopia because in 1984 the telescreen is stuck to your apartment wall it doesn't follow you around, it's not in your pocket. Whereas our telescreens are our smartphones and we voluntarily share our every movement, our every location with them. And by doing so, share the information with Facebook and Google and and others. So it's first important to understand that the surveillance state and the surveillance capitalism we've created exceeds Orwell's expectations. I think China's built or is in the process of building a system of social credit that is, or at least aspires to be omniscient about citizens. And that's turned out to be rather powerful and useful in a pandemic, because once they realized they'd screwed up in in Wuhan, they they were able to use their fantastic levels of surveillance to ensure that In the rest of China, there was uh, social distancing and to enforce quarantines and to punish people who violated the rules in ways that simply aren't possible anywhere else. Um, Not not in Europe, certainly, because of uh, data protection rules, but not in the US either, because although Facebook and and Google know an amazing amount about what their users do and where they go, they don't uh, make that information available to the government. And indeed, they keep the information very close indeed, because it is the basis for their vast profits. It's that vast store of data that allows them to dominate digital advertising and indeed advertising generally these days. So there are two different kinds of surveillance. And the one thing you'd say in favor of the Chinese option is that at least in a crisis, it can be used for public good. And at this point, the United States is flying blind Into a pandemic. We have hardly any adequate testing. We know next to nothing about the scale of infection in the country at this point. We're discussing this in the middle of March 2020. And so far as I'm aware, no tech company has offered its extraordinarily detailed knowledge of the social networks of the US population to help us track the contagion. I mean, they could do that. We could go very quickly from known cases to their social networks through Facebook and Google and we could very quickly identify the most vulnerable uh, people and the most vulnerable locations but we're we're not doing any of that to my knowledge so that's where we are it's i think a completely indefensible state of affairs the network platform companies know far too much about ordinary citizens the potential exists for that knowledge to be uh, captured by a government that might be unfriendly to individual liberties. That is a not implausible scenario in more than one Western country. And uh, we have no adequate protections, uh, nor do we have any conceivable way for citizens to retrieve their data and reestablish the property rights that they probably uh, de uh, facto had in that data or those data Uh, We're in a strange uh, limbo land where the current regulatory and legal framework grotesquely favors network platform companies with near monopoly positions over individual users. And I can't see that changing because I can't see anyone in Congress fully understanding the nature of the problem and having the will and the resources to pass legislation that would fundamentally impact the bottom line of the most profitable companies in America. It's not gonna happen.
0: Neil Ferguson, that was an absolute delight. Thank you very much for your time in these difficult times. Stay safe and stay in touch. Same to you, Michael, and to all listeners.